do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. Uh, Today we're covering a topic that I hope, I mean this is one of my goals, I hope it'll bring comfort to a lot of people. And I'm also sure it's going to anger a lot of people uh, because there's two theological frameworks in particular that I have to sort of, I think, point out flaws with uh, and inconsistencies with. So we're going to be doing that today. Uh, The main goal is I want to address the view, sometimes the doctrine of infant damnation. Um, and that being that when a baby or a child dies uh, who does not know the Lord, so to speak, that they would go to hell or that they would go to what's referred to as limbo. We'll get into that later too. Uh, but I want to address this doctrine because I think not only is it reprehensible, I also think that it's entirely unbiblical. And when I say entirely unbiblical, I mean it goes deeper than just this topic and answering this specific question. There's going to have to be understanding behind this. There's going to have to be a whole foundation pointed out behind this because the only reason anybody for the most part would believe in the doctrine of infant damnation is if their theological framework forces them to. And we're going to look at all sorts of escape hatches people try to provide for themselves to get out of this. I want to show you a lot of ways that um, it's it's been tried tried to be explained away. And I want to show you why some some throughout church history, some really famous figures throughout church history we're really all in on this doctrine, and it's because they were trying to be consistent with their theology. So I want to demonstrate all of that, but most importantly, I want to A, comfort people who maybe have lost a child or, or have a family member or a good friend or anybody who's lost a child uh, and hasn't been comforted with an answer to this question of, are they with the Lord? And B, I want to show that even you listening, you might think, oh, I would never believe such a thing. God could never do that. But you might be contradicting your own theology, which is why the views we hold are so important. Um, so we're going to be uh, we're going to be addressing this topic, and those are the two main goals I have. There's a lot more that's going to come out of it, but those are the two main goals. Uh, and before we do that, just make sure you hit follow wherever you're listening and hit the notify button so you're notified. We have a new segment coming out in the next two weeks or so. Um, we're starting on YouTube. I'm actually trying to get that figured out as we speak, and. Uh, we're going to be doing our Q&A on the last Friday of this month. So send your questions right now to information at apologetics.org. If you disagree with me on this episode and on this topic or anything I say, I would love to know why. So send me an argument, send me an article, send me a resource, whatever it is. Um, and I'd love to respond to your question or your statement or your challenge at the end of the month. So that's information at apologetics.org. And like I always say, Uh, you might have a question that so many other people have as well. So just ask it. It's worth typing the email. Uh, Eventually, we'll we'll move to some sort of live stream thing. We're getting social media going and all kinds of stuff. So um, I'll keep you filled in and updated on that. But for now, just send them to that email and we'll respond on the last Friday uh, of February. So like I said, um, I, I want people to come away comforted by this and I want other people to come away having to rethink some of their views that would cause them uh, to have to submit to this doctrine, whether they're comfortable with it or not. So I, I can reject it entirely based on my view of a few things, but you may not be able to do that. So here, here's the main point. Number one, God does not judge or condemn infants of sin 
because according to scripture, they aren't capable of sinning or being held culpable for immoral behavior. Now, uh, both Roman Catholics and Calvinists are going to, um, there's going to be a caveat here, and we'll get to that later too. But just one more time, God does not judge or condemn infants of sin because according to scripture, not a theological framework, but scripture, they aren't capable of sinning or being held culpable for immoral behavior. And number two, both the Roman Catholic and Calvinist positions cannot deny the doctrine of infant damnation without contradicting the larger theological framework based on their view of original sin and specifically original guilt and or total depravity. So I'm going to contend here that the Roman Catholic and the Calvinist cannot consistently reject the doctrine of infant damnation uh, without going against the larger framework of their view. So I hope to show that today. I've certainly, uh, I, I used to be somebody who, who held the view of original sin and original guilt. I don't know if I'd say total depravity. I was fairly close to it, but definitely the idea of original guilt and the federal headship view, which we've covered in other episodes, which is the idea that not only are you guilty of your own sin, not only are you born into a corrupted body uh, that's affected by the original sin, but also you are guilty of the sin that Adam committed because he, as your proxy, as your federal head, if he committed the sin, that means you committed the sin because he's your representative. So that's the view that I used to hold and I no longer hold, but I'm going to show you why that necessarily has to end in infant damnation. So uh, one more thing before we get into detail. To be clear, I'm not suggesting, again, that all Calvinists or that all Roman Catholics believe in infant damnation. I, I know that all of them don't because I know many of them who don't hold that view. Uh, in fact, both John Calvin and Charles Spurgeon, who's probably my favorite preacher of all time, um, both of those guys, both of them thought the doctrine was reprehensible. They wanted nothing to do with it. They hated it. Uh, they, they didn't hold the view. So I'm not suggesting everyone holds it if you're a Calvinist or a Catholic, even though many do hold this view if they're trying to be consistent, including some very well-known uh, historical figures throughout church history. However, again, that isn't the point of this episode. The point of this episode is to show that infants and children have no cause for eternal punishment or separation from God's grace, as again, we'll get into detail on that later, um, and also that for a Catholic or Calvinist to agree with me, they have to contradict their own framework, their own theological framework. It's a you-can't-have-your-cake-and-eat-it-too situation. Which, by the way, I didn't understand that phrase until a year or two ago. I thought it was just like, well, anytime I've eaten cake, I had the cake first. Why can't you have it and eat it? And my mom told me that once you eat it, it's gone, so you won't have it anymore. And I thought, oh. So let's start with a view of Roman Catholicism. And again, uh, the Roman Catholic Church and Calvinism, they both share the view of original guilt. That's how they view original sin, that you are guilty of Adam's sin, so you are born with that guilt that is punishable by God. Now, remember, that's very, very important to this discussion. Obviously, you can see why already. Um, but if a baby is born, not just corrupted by sin, uh, but actually born guilty of sin, somebody else's sin that is now spread through them, um, through the line, through the federal headship view, through the proxy view, however you want to refer to it, that it is spread to them before they're even born, once they're born, or even before they're born, they are guilty of sin, and that sin is punishable by God. Now, both the Catholic and the Calvinist will also differentiate between personal sin that you've actually physically committed, 
um, personal sin and original sin. So there's these two sort of categories. You, you have personal sin that you've committed, and then you have original sin. Now, they would agree with me in the sense that, of course, a baby can't commit personal sin. They don't, they, I mean, they can't really, uh, they can't comprehend that. Um, there's scripture on that later that we're going to get to, but they would agree that a baby and a small child can't actually commit personal sin, but that they are guilty of original sin or original guilt. Uh, and so what that ended up doing is prompting Augustine, who again is cherished by both Catholics and Calvinists. He's actually cherished by everybody. I mean, he's, he was a great theologian, though he had some, I think, some very obvious blind spots that you know he didn't have as many resources as, as we do to be able to figure things out. He didn't have the knowledge to read Greek and Hebrew and so on. So, um, But anyway, this led him to suggest that children go to hell or that they go to limbo. In limbo, you might think is purgatory. It's actually technically different. When you look at the Roman Catholic Church, and we're going to show this from the Catechism in a moment, purgatory is actually a doctrine in the Catholic Church. It's it's for certain in the Catholic Church. Limbo, on the other hand, isn't. But it's important to know that even though limbo is not doctrine in the Catholic Church, it's the general consensus and it's a general view that's taught in the Catholic Church, even though it's it's taught as a belief and not a dogma. So it's never actually been made a dogma um, by the church authority, but it's held pretty widely, and you'll see why there has to be some sort of answer for where children go when they pass away. So let's start with purgatory. Uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines purgatory as a state of final purification after death and before entrance into heaven for those who died in God's friendship, but were only imperfectly purified. A final cleansing of human imperfection before one uh, before one is able to enter the joy of heaven. So, purgatory is this idea um, that some people have referred to it as a, as a waiting room. It's sort of this middle place idea, but it's that once you go to purgatory, you're going to be purified until you are worthy to enter into heaven. Now, of course, as a non-Catholic, I would reject that notion. I would think there's no purpose for purgatory. Um, Christ's grace is sufficient for you. His mercy is sufficient for you. His righteousness and salvation is sufficient for you to where somebody asks, if they were to ask you the question, why should I let you into heaven? If God were to ask you that question, rather, you could say, because while I've done nothing to deserve your mercy and grace, Christ has, and his righteousness has been imputed to me. It has been given to me fully so that I receive what he deserved, even though I didn't deserve it. Uh, And that is sufficient for us. It is sufficient that we can approach God's throne boldly, confidently, because of Christ's grace. Christ alone is sufficient to save us. There is no need for purification, because the one who is perfectly pure gave us his purification. But this is the idea of purgatory nonetheless. Uh, It's this idea of being uh, finally purified after death and before heaven. And once you're fully purified, then you would enter heaven to be with the Lord. And this is why um, indulgences still exist uh, today, by the way. We've covered this in some other episodes, but and I'll link that in the description. But during the Reformation, uh, you you may be familiar if you've watched any videos or read any books on it, the saying... Uh, when the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so during the Reformation, people were paying because the church authority would say, well, if you want to get your grandmother or so on and so forth out of purgatory, you can pay and we can give you, we can give the special penance. Uh, we can basically fast forward her to be closer to heaven. And so this doctrine was formulated at the Council of Florence and at the Council of Trent in the 1400s and the 1500s. 
I mean, and in Catholicism, there's a lot of views that are just views or just beliefs until they become doctrine or dogma. Uh, for example, the idea that Mary is perpetually a virgin and was born sinless. Those were just beliefs in the Catholic Church until Pope Pius IX, and then they were actually made dogma. They were made doctrine, and at that point, it's the Church's official belief. So that's the idea of purgatory. Now, limbo, on the other hand, again, isn't considered doctrine or dogma in the Catholic Church, and actually, uh, members of the Catholic Church are allowed to disagree with it, so I want to make that clear as well. But with that being said, it is the most popular view, and it is commonly taught in the Catholic Church because you have to have some kind of idea uh, for what to do with this dilemma of where a child would go based on original sin. So limbo is a theological concept, but it's not considered doctrine. Now, this is a quote from uh, Father Hart. I got it from catholiccourier.com. I'll link it down um, in the the uh, resources down bottom. But it says, the notion of limbo was developed when early theologians attempted to come to grips with the Gospel of John, which basically said anyone not born of water and the Holy Spirit could not enter the kingdom of heaven. So again, um, that's because they interpret John 3 uh, as saying, unless you're baptized, you cannot be born again. Now, the episode's not about this, but if you read Ezekiel 36, um, you get the idea. You'll see water all throughout the Old Testament, symbolic of, of purifying and cleansing. And so God in Ezekiel 36 says that he is going to sprinkle us with clean water and make us new again. I don't think it's a reference to baptism at all. I think baptism is totally symbolic. Um, and whether you're baptized or not before you die makes no difference. So that's just my view. That's an episode for another day. But this is pretty much explaining us where to us where this idea of limbo comes from. So limbo comes from the idea that, well, if a baby is born with original sin and therefore original guilt, and that baby dies uh, without having been baptized, because in the Roman Catholic view, baptism is the beginning of regeneration. Um, if a baby dies without being baptized and cleansed from their sin, how can they be saved? How can they receive mercy and grace from God? Which again is going to be important to this discussion that, that grace specifically, because that's going to come up from a few uh, historical theologians. So that's a question that needed to be answered. One of the answers is, well, they go to limbo and we're going to break down limbo in a few minutes here too. Uh, but this essentially started with Augustine. And there's a lot we can say about Augustine in this regard, and especially in the regard of original sin. As I've pointed out in in, in the past, um, Augustine couldn't read Greek. And so when you think about this whole concept of original sin, um, I'll just make this brief because I've already explained it elsewhere, but it started essentially with Augustine. You really can't find anything about original guilt before Augustine, or at least anything concrete. Um, so Augustine read Romans 5.12, and Romans 5.12 is the verse that tells us uh, that death spread to all men because all sinned. Well, the Latin Vulgate is all Augustine had access to. Uh, the Latin Vulgate was a translation of the Bible translated by Jerome in the 400s, and this is all he had because he couldn't read Greek, so he couldn't go read the other manuscripts. And the Latin Vulgate is riddled with errors. We now know that very well. One of these errors is in Romans 5.12, where instead of reading that death spread to all men because all sinned, spiritual death that is at the very least, um, that death spread to men because all sinned, what Augustine would have read in the Latin Vulgate, what would have propelled him into this view of original guilt and the federal headship view of the guilt coming from Adam through us is a faulty translation, which essentially says death spread to all men in whom 
in, in Adam in whom all sinned. So what the Latin Vulgate says is in Adam all sinned and so death spread to all men. Now you can see a pretty big difference between the translation of all sinned in Adam symbolically and it was spread to them because of that and on the other hand death spread to all men because all sinned. So in other words the difference is you're being judged for Adam's sin on one hand or on the other hand you're being judged for your sin. And when we read the original, uh, I mean, we don't have any original Greek text, but the the Greek manuscripts that are available, we see in our, it's reflected in our translations now, unlike the Latin Vulgate, that we sinned and therefore we are guilty of our sin. So all that to say, Augustine formulated this idea of original sin and original guilt, and he had to come up with a solution of what to do with children who were not yet old enough to actually place their faith in Christ. It would be entirely inconsistent to say that a child can just be excused and given God's grace because then anybody else could as well. Remember, there is this differentiation between, um, in both the Catholic and Calvinist view, between original sin and personal sin that you've actually committed. But we're judged not just for personal sin, we're judged for original sin and original guilt, which again is why um, in Catholicism children are baptized Uh, in order to receive salvation. It's not symbolic. It's to remove original sin and original guilt. So to answer the dilemma, Augustine, who is trying to be consistent based on the view that he just received from a faulty translation, comes up with this idea of limbo. Now, this is from an article uh, on catholic.com. I'm just going to read some parts of it. And again, I'll link that in the resources as well. But this is a section on Augustine. It says, debate regarding the fate of infants who die before baptism dates back to the late 4th century and the famous conflict between Pelagius and St. Augustine. Pelagius asserted that man is capable of living a perfect moral life by virtue of his natural reason and and will alone and is not wounded by original sin. So pause real real quick. Um, I am not... Pelagian. I don't believe that anybody's capable of living a perfect moral life. Um, those of you who may be Methodist, you'll know that John Wesley came up with this view called, um, well, he didn't come up with it, but he he held this view called Christian perfectionism, where he said, I haven't achieved it, but it is possible to, to achieve Christian perfection here on earth. Um, I don't hold that view at all. I think Romans 3 just trashes that when it tells us that all have become worthless, all have sinned, all have gone their own way. No one does good, not even one all have fallen short of the glory of God. All means all in this situation here. Okay, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no way around that. So I I reject that. I also reject that nobody is wounded by original sin, depending on what you mean by wounded. And now he goes on and he says, in opposition to Pelagius, St. Augustine successfully defended the reality of original sin using scripture and the tradition of the church. The apostolic practice of infant baptism was evidence of the church's belief that even these youngest ones stood in need of a savior. Without original sin, baptism could only affect the forgiveness of our personal sins. Remember the differentiation between original and personal sin. So baptism could only affect the forgiveness of personal sins. Infant baptism makes no sense without original sin. Did you catch that? That's very important. This is from Catholic.com. Infant baptism, salvific 
infant baptism. We're not talking about a view, for example, that Presbyterians hold, where they think it's symbolic and you're being welcomed into the covenant, uh, covenant, <laughs> the, the, the covenant through baptism. Uh, Catholicism, of course, is different. They believe in uh, salvation by baptism. It's part of the whole package here. So he says, infant baptism makes no sense without original sin. I agree. And I reject both. In his teaching against the Pelagian heresy, Augustine affirmed the necessity of this ancient practice. In an, if an infant died unbaptized, he died in a state of sin and was therefore destined to eternal damnation. So let's pause again. So you see where Augustine is trying to be consistent here. He's saying, okay, well, anybody, because of original sin, because of original guilt, anybody who dies in a state of that original guilt without having been saved by the blood of Christ, well, they're destined to eternal damnation. That's it. It's black and white. So you can see where he's trying to be consistent here. And he goes on and he says, he denied the existence between damnation and the kingdom of heaven of some middle place of rest and happiness. For this is what the heresy of Pelagius promised them. And that's from on the soul in its origin. Now, uh, he goes on, this is the author on catholic.com. He goes on and says, Augustine's position is not quite as harsh as it seems. Now, let's pause here uh, to have a laugh. Augustine's position is not quite as harsh as it seems, ladies and gentlemen. So he, he, doesn't, he doesn't believe that uh, babies are just, you know, tormented and tortured for all of eternity. He just believes they're left out there to die miserably apart from God. So he's not that harsh, you know. It's, it's a pretty reasonable position, isn't it? So Augustine's position is not quite as harsh as it seems. Uh, he writes, who can, doubt, who can doubt that non-baptized infants, having only original sin and no burden of personal sins, will suffer the lightest condemnation of all? Okay, so see, very reasonable position. See, he's he's kind, he's gracious. He's saying, listen, they don't, they only have original sin and not personal sin, so they'll get the lightest punishment. You know, they'll get the lightest condemnation from the Lord. He says, I cannot define the amount and kind of their punishment, but I dare not say it were better for them to never have existed than to exist there. Um, and this is from the teachings of the Church Fathers by John Randolph Willis. The the quote. So you see, um, this is considered reasonable. Why? Because they have to do something with original guilt, with original sin, this concept that's not in the, in the Bible, that's not in Scripture, that wasn't held by early church fathers before Augustine. They have to do something with it. And what they're going to do with it is they're going to, in Augustine's case, we're also going to go to Aquinas and a couple others. In Augustine's case, it's like, hey, they go to limbo. Um, they're going to suffer the lightest condemnation of all. Don't worry. Like, okay, where are you getting this? Again, not from scripture, but from a theological framework that has to try to make sense of this position, but there can't be made any sense of it other than to say something horrible and harsh. Now, this notion that there are babies sitting before God in judgment and having his wrath poured out, albeit lightly, uh, on them is, is not only a terribly embarrassing idea that needs to depart from the church forever, but it's also one that's foreign to scripture and is based on a theological framework rather than the biblical text. This is entirely unbiblical, and they're trying to force it because of their starting point, which is also unbiblical. So that's where the idea of limbo came from. Um, so, And now we're going to see the, the idea of limbo. Remember, limbo is not purgatory. Purgatory is for those who are going to be saved, and they're being refined through the fire. 
limbo isn't that limbo is like well we don't know what to do with them i I don't feel comfortable saying they're going to go to hell even though it's consistent with my theology Um, obviously i can't say they're going to heaven even though i'd really like to so we just make this place up out of the blue called limbo that has no place in scripture uh, or anything like it so that's limbo And, and aquinas um who lived, I mean, almost a thousand years after Augustine, is now going to further this definition. So let's pick up on the article again. By the 13th century, the dominant view was that unbaptized infants would suffer only the pain of loss. Oh, good. So they'd only suffer the pain of loss, not eternal damnation and and, uh, God's wrath poured out on them. So they'd suffer only the pain of loss. In 1201, Pope Innocent III expressed this opinion in a letter to the Archbishop of Arles. Doesn't sound so innocent to me. Actual sin, the Holy Father asserted, is punishment by the eternal torment of hell. Original sin, however, is punished by the loss of the vision of God. So let's pause here. Remember the differentiation between actual or personal sin and original sin or original guilt. He's saying actual sin is punished by the eternal torment of God in hell. Uh, Original sin, however, is punished by the loss of the vision of God. So two things here. Number one, again, where do you see this in Scripture? Nowhere. Nowhere do you see this in Scripture. Number two, apparently babies and children and infants, whether born or unborn, all they receive, they're not going to be eternally punished. They're just going to receive the loss of the vision of God. That's all. I mean, he goes on to say, this line of thinking was explored thoroughly by St. Thomas Aquinas, the angelic doctor consigned infants who died with baptism to the outermost borders of hell, which he called the limbo of children. Okay, let me read that one more time before we go on. Aquinas consigned infants who died with baptism to the outmost borders of hell, which he called the limbo of children. They died without the grace of God and would spend eternity without it, but they were not worthy of punishment. So here we see the same concept again that we sort of saw develop from Augustine. Um, they, They die without the grace of God and would spend eternity apart from God's grace, um, but they're not actually worthy of punishment. He goes, sounds like a punishment to me, by the way, but he goes on and says, uh, St. Thomas insisted that these little ones would know no pain or remorse. He explained this opinion in various ways. In his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences, he stated that no one regrets the lack of something uh, which he is totally unequipped to have. So nobody's going to reject what they didn't know they could have. Ten years later, he suggested that infants would not be distraught over their loss. Listen to this. He suggested that infants would not be distraught over their loss because they simply would have no knowledge of what they were missing. First of all, this would raise big issues with the pro-life argument big time. Well, an unborn baby doesn't know what they're missing, so what if they die? Well, a baby or a child... They don't, they're not going to be distraught over loss because they have no idea what heaven's like. They have no idea what, what being with their family and the glory of God would be like. So who cares if they're on the outskirts of hell in the freezing cold? That's okay. Second of all, if infants need their mothers for attachment, emotional, physical, uh, psychological, otherwise, and their mother isn't there, and although Isaiah 66 says God is sufficient to love like a mother, but God isn't there, and God's not there to give them any grace, how would they not be distraught? I can't imagine anything worse 
for a newborn or an infant than being left without uh, a parent figure. And of course, we don't know what age looks like in, in heaven and eternity and so on and so forth. But with this line of thinking, that to me sounds more distressing than me actually going to hell. And not only that, but again, this is pure speculation in wishful thinking to answer a dilemma raised by an unbiblical worldview. And we have to keep going back to that. Unbiblical views lead to unbiblical conclusions like this one. Now, limbo views are views of this idea of limbo, this this um, place that isn't necessarily purgatory. It's a place where uh, babies are going to be alone and cut off from God's grace, but they're not going to be physically punished. Uh, it's, it's on the outskirts of hell. So this view still exists. It's changed a little bit, okay? Uh, but it's still here, and it's still the most popular view for this this concept in the Catholic Church. And once again, from the article, it says, eventually, limbo ceased to be spoken of as a border region of hell. Hell came to be understood as a place of punishment. Limbo was not. And since, it has never been a defined dogma of the church. Uh, or since it has never been a defined dogma of the church, Various theologians have understood limbo in different ways. Most views, however, would conclude these common characteristics. Unbaptized infants die in a state of sin and enter neither heaven nor hell, but limbo, which is a state of damnation not involving pain of of sense or grief of exile. Indeed, a measure of natural happiness is possible, with some suggesting that the denizens of limbo enjoy a perfect state of natural happiness. So, here's this, this... uh, concept sort of broadened and, and now it's it's gone from this dark sort of cold place apart from the grace of God to you can have total natural happiness apart from the grace of God uh, which again is not even not only inconsistent in a number of ways but it, this this isn't found anywhere in scripture it's pure speculation they probably didn't want to sound it to sound as bad as it once did so they kind of they kind of sharpened it up a little bit but it's still the same idea it's children because of original guilt um, are judged and cut off from the grace of God and left on their own, albeit now they're naturally happy. And so one more time, just so nobody thinks I'm making this up, uh, this is from Father John Harden at etwn.com. This is, I mean, the verified priest. It says, unbaptized children going to limbo is the general teaching and consensus in the Catholic Church today. Okay, so there you go. So, of course, it's a slightly different version of limbo, uh, but it's not all, that, uh, not all that much better. It just sounds like it's a little bit warmer. Now, let's, let's look at the uh, catechism again. This is from 1261 in the Catholic Catechism, and this is on, uh, again, the idea of children passing away. It says, The church can only entrust them to the mercy of God, as she does in her funeral rites for them. Indeed, the great mercy of God, who desires that all men should be saved, in Jesus' tenderness toward children, which caused him to say, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, allows us to hope that there is a way of salvation for children who have died without baptism. So, again, in light of the theological framework, the bigger picture, you can't escape that. We can hope in that framework that God contradicts himself. We can hope that if God has to punish this original sin and this original guilt, he'll just contradict himself this one time and not do it. I mean, that's what we pretty much get here. So if you support infant damnation, at least you're consistent with your own view, but you're not consistent with scripture. Uh, But this is just wishful thinking. Again, what you're going to see from all these responses, Catholic, Calvinist, fill in the blank, whatever it is, it's wishful thinking at best and a contradiction at worst. 
to suggest that God can either wink at sin and guilt and, and arbitrarily override it in these situations. And the two verses referenced here, they don't actually give us any hope of salvation for infants if we read them through the lens of original guilt and original sin consistently. And remember, those two um, those two verses about let the children come to me, well, he says the same thing about adults. Jesus says that about grownups too. He says, come to me, all who are uh, laden and, and heavily burdened. Don't be burdened. Come to me. He also desires for you to be saved regardless of your age, regardless of where you are and when you grew up. Uh, and so unless you're a universalist, you know that these verses don't mean that all are saved and hell doesn't exist. It's not any different when you're going to try to apply it for children if you want to be consistent. Now, in regard to baptism of infants, this is again from the Catechism 1258, if you want to go look that up. And you don't need a physical one. Of course, you can pull this up online. <clears throat> it says, a church has always held the firm conviction that those who suffer death for the sake of the faith without having received baptism are baptized by their own death for and with Christ. The baptism of blood, that's a term that's important here. Uh, the baptism of blood, like the desire for baptism, another term that's important, brings about the fruits of baptism without being a sacrament. Now, if we work backwards here, remember the fruits of baptism in Catholicism are not symbolic. They're not just something done um, symbolically in obedience to Christ, but they actually bring about uh, real spiritual fruits. They're part of your salvation. It is necessary for the Catholic to be saved um, in the sense of salvation. So um, let's just look at those terms mentioned again there really quick, because what this is basically saying is outside of uh, being baptized, there's still hope. There's hope that those who suffer death for the sake of the faith without having received baptism are still saved. Um, and there's this idea of the desire for baptism. And um, this is idea that, that there are some parents who, who might be able to pray and hope and have the desire that their baby was baptized, even though, um, even though they aren't. And look at what Thomas Aquinas says on this uh, in Summa Theologica. He says that children still within the womb of their mother, are able to be saved through the sacrament of baptism that is received, not in reality, but in the desire of the parents. So again, as an attempt to try to reconcile this dilemma, there's this sort of imagine this approach where you can imagine and desire and want your child to be baptized or to have been baptized. Um, and so that could be sufficient. Now you, you can obviously see this is just speculation and it's trying to answer a hard question with something a little bit lighter, but it's not found anywhere in scripture. There's no reason uh, to hold this view. And if anything, this almost reflects the Mormon's uh, view of the baptism of the dead more than it does scripture. Uh, and, and of course, their view is that you can be baptized on, on behalf of a dead relative. And, um, and so this falls more in line with that than it does anything else. So again, you, you see these distinctions that are made. You see all of these sort of, um, I don't know if you want to call them trap doors or ways out or ways around the issue that aren't consistent with the theology of original guilt. Because again, if you are born with original guilt, then God has to judge you for that original guilt. He can't just arbitrarily not judge some people and judge others. And we're just left with uh, essentially this, this, these speculative answers that go against the consistency of the theology. Now, in Calvinism, it's essentially, not all the issues are the same. Again, they don't believe in um, baptism by salvation, but 
they are stuck with the same question of, well, um, if we're all going to agree that there's some sort of age of accountability or something like that, how is that consistent, again, with, with Calvinist theology? Because if you were born with original guilt and you're original gu- originally guilty, then God has to judge you for that guilt. I mean, if Romans 3 is referencing, you know, original guilt in some ways, if we're all agreeing that you can't be perfectly Christian and the Calvinist is going to say, well, of course you can't be, you can't achieve Christian perfection uh, because you're already born sinful. You're already born with the guilt of Adam and Eve's sin. Then that guilt has to be punished. That's punishable sin, even though it isn't a sin sort of actively, actively committed. Now, in my view, um, the reason that we can't achieve Christian perfection isn't because we're born with original guilt. Uh, it is because Scripture is very clear that all of us have sinned, A, and B, that everybody is born affected by the original sin, corrupted by the original sin. And to explain what I mean, um, when Ezekiel 18 tells us that you are not punished for your parents' sin, there is such a thing as being punished by your parents' sin, even though you're not punished for it. And as an example, imagine if a... Um, a mother and or a father were to do some kind of addictive drug like crack cocaine or something like that. Well, the baby could then be born, their baby could be born with a dependency or an addiction to some sort of drug, crack cocaine or whatever it is, even though the baby had have never actually participated. So clearly the baby would, would be affected by those drugs in a number of ways, even though he didn't participate, but it doesn't mean the baby is guilty of having participated. So that would be a a sort of a makeshift example of being punished by your parents' sin, but not being punished for your parents' sin. Um, And this works in any variety of ways. I mean, let's think of somebody who might be, um, I was just talking about this with somebody recently, actually, who might have a, a really tough time financially. And it's like, maybe their parents weren't good with finances and their grandparents. And so they've kind of inherited this. And, and so they're, they're sort of punished by the way their parents used money, but they're not punished for the way that their parents used money. And it's the same thing in regard to original sin. Scripture is more than clear uh, that the original sin of Adam and Eve has corrupted nature. It's corrupted our bodies. It's corrupted a number of things. But nowhere does it say we are born and given original guilt as a result of it. And we already cleared up Romans 5.12, and that's generally the, the pinnacle of where you'll go, and, and supporting passages will, will come after that. But that's the pinnacle, and we've seen that that's based off of a false translation. I also think that if you've ever had children or been around children, especially toddlers, um, they they give us a great example of this too. When you look at Deut- Deuteronomy one thirty nine, you see that um, when they were on their way to the promised land, Moses was told that his people would not be allowed in the promised land because of their sin, because of their rebellion, because of their doubt. But who would be let in? The children. The children would still be allowed to go in later because the children at this time do not understand good and evil. They're not capable of sin. And remember, uh, the Calvinist and the Catholic will both have those two categories of original sin and personal or actual sin. Uh, And so they'll say, well, yeah, maybe a child can't commit personal sin, but they can commit or, or they have committed through Adam original sin and they're guilty of that original sin. And that's where I disagree because that's just, it's not a biblical idea. It was founded uh, on a faulty translation. And so children provide a great example of this though, because 
if you've ever had a toddler or a small child, you know that you constantly have to teach them what not to do and what to do right. Okay, you don't have to constantly go up to a toddler and say, hey, you're being a little bit too nice. Can you be a little rougher? No, you, ha- you have to constantly say, hey, don't smack your sister in the head. Hey, don't kick that person. Hey, don't grab that away. It's not your turn. Hey, don't do this. It's like a constant thing because in their nature, they're constantly having to battle sort of this uh, natural inclination toward doing something that they're not supposed to do. But that's, that's an example of how a child is acting out the way that nature has been corrupted by sin, by the original sin, including us. But we're not born with original guilt of Adam and Eve's sin. Um, so, and I, and I also think while they they show us a good example of the difference between original sin and actually sinning, uh, and then on the other hand, just doing something that you're not supposed to do and having to learn how to not do it, that's not actually a sin for a child. If my son comes up and slaps me on the head, he's going to have time out, okay? He's doing something wrong. We're trying to teach him not to do that, but that's not a sin. He doesn't understand that he's doing something morally wrong. He's trying to learn. He's trying to figure out what he can and can't do. He's trying to learn the boundaries of life. He's not actually sinning. And so it's important that we understand that distinction. Children, just like us, will act out that natural inclination, that natural sort of um, corrupt tendency that's going to come from the result of sin. Uh, So they are, in that sense, they are affected and you could even say um, punished by the sin of Adam and Eve that's had its its hand on all over all creation, but they're not punished for Adam's sin. So in the Calvinist's perspective, um, you have that T in the TULIP acronym, acronym that we are totally depraved totally depraved, to the point where you couldn't even recognize the grace of God. And this is not a condition that comes as a result of you sinning. You sin as a result of this condition. And I used to use, um, I used to use the phrase often that we're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are sinners. And I don't necessarily use it anymore, though there is truth to it. There is truth that, well, we, we have a tendency to sin because of the corrupted world we've been born into. Um, but that's not the same thing as saying you're punished for the sin of Adam in the sense of like, you're actually punished for his guilt. Those are two different things. And the the second one being punished for Adam's guilt is not scriptural. So again, the Calvinist has to, has to deal with this same issue. Um, and I think that the issue is even worse in my opinion for the Calvinist because they don't believe in infant baptism like the Catholic church does. So it's like, you'd have to have a child get all the way to the age of accountability and uh, be regenerated and be irresistibly saved and outwardly profess in Christ before you can even trust that they're saved. And so that's that's even worse than just baptizing a baby and now their original sin is gone. And, and that's another issue that I think is presented here. Um, you have to sort of take that, let's say, ages negative nine months, nine months in the womb to whatever the age of accountability accountability may be for that particular child, you have to now fill in that whole gap with some kind of excuse of if something happens to them in that time and they die, we have to have some kind of answer that comes from speculation because the only consistent response, the only consistent response if you were a Calvinist or if you were um, a Catholic is to say that that baby is in hell, that that baby has received eternal damnation, that they're being judged by the Lord for the sin of Adam that they were born into. Ideas have consequences. And this is one of those consequences of of an idea. 
And again, I hope that if you're listening to this and you've had a child who has um, who has passed away or you know somebody close to you or even not close to you with a child who's passed away, I hope that this would give you comfort that God doesn't have to overlook their sin and look past their sin and have this, you know, arbitrary, arbitrary hope that isn't found in scripture that maybe, you know, in God's mercy, maybe he violated the way he usually does things and saved my child. You can be confident that God has given your child mercy and grace. You can be confident that your child is with the Lord because your child wasn't capable of sin. Your child had done nothing to receive condemnation, to receive judgment, to receive the wrath of God. He couldn't sin. Your child could not actively sin. And if you were traveling through the desert with the ancient Israelites and you constantly grumbled and complained and rebelled against God, guess what? He would have let the child into the promised land without you because your child doesn't know good from evil. Your child doesn't know sin. So my hope is that A, this would comfort you, and B, again, that those of you who hold the, the, the view of original guilt that I used to hold, okay, I used to be Mr. Original Guilt, uh, but that, that view that you hold, I hope and pray that you would reconsider it, that you would reconstruct it, that, that you would do more digging and find out where it came from, because you're going to find out it came from guys like Augustine, it didn't come from guys like the Apostle Paul. And it didn't come from guys like Christ, and it didn't come from guys uh, like the Apostle Peter. It came from church figures who misunderstood Scripture based on faulty translations. And that's not completely their fault, okay? All of us are imperfect. None of us are perfect. Even the apostles weren't perfect, of course. But that's why we have the inspired Word of God to look to, to learn from, and to use that as a lens to view everything else through. So if you want to be consistent with your theology— if you want to know what the scriptures truly say, sometimes you have to step back from a theological framework and be able to look at it objectively. And that doesn't mean throw away the whole thing. Like the, I know we're talking about kids here, but to throw away the, the baby with the bathwater, I'm not suggesting that you do that. But I am suggesting that you reform your view where it's necessary. I mean, think about where you would be if the reformers didn't reform their views and if they did say something. You'd be throwing your last pennies into a bucket to get your grandmother out of purgatory. So again, ideas have consequences. Don't be afraid to change your ideas when you learn something different. Don't be afraid to challenge your own ideas. And as we always say, can you prove your view to yourself? If you hold the view of original sin and original guilt, even if you hold the view of infant damnation, can you prove it to yourself or are you just basing it off of a view that you've always held and it's the only one you've known and your favorite preacher and your favorite YouTube guy holds it, so you have to hold it? If you're doing that, uh, then I hope that you would consider reforming your view. I hope that you would think through why you hold your views, all of your views. This is what I'm trying to do all the time. And if you're, if you're wondering, Nick, how come you only gave one positive passage for children being in heaven? Well, the reason is that there's no reason for children not to be in heaven because they're not capable of sinning. We don't have to go look through all of the scripture to find uh, those passages on that because it's not something that needs to be found. But with that being said, I want to do a podcast next on responding to the idea, uh, while we're on the topic of children, that atheists often claim. And it's that as a Christian, you're indoctrinating your children and that indoctrination of religion, uh, as they would say, myths and fairy tales and so on. It's actually abuse to indoctrinate your children with religion. So we're going to cover that next, uh, probably Tuesday night at 5 p.m. Eastern time. I'll try to get it out before then if I can, but it's probably going to be Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. So make sure you come back for that. Get your questions in to information at apologetics.org. And otherwise, I hope you have a blessed week. We'll see you back here next week, if not sooner.